Hypocrisy is play-acting. It's withholding the whole truth of yourself from those you seek to influence and gain advantage from with the fear that if they really knew you, you would lose your influence and advantage. And so to nip hypocrisy in the bud, you have to decide to stop trying to influence others. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life. I'm Joe Van Hoogen. I'm the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and I'm the executive director of the International Outreach and Disciple-Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. Our full-time missionaries are working to equip and engage the body of Christ in many countries around the world. You can learn more about how we're raising up national evangelists and disciple-makers and church planters by going to traincpe.org. Now for our lesson. From Luke 12, 1-3, we're addressing the Lord's warning regarding hypocrisy. It comes after he has castigated the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, whose good intent to prepare people for the Messiah had been corrupted by their love of influence to the point in which they were calling upon people to crucify the one who had come to be their Messiah, in order that the disciples might not fall into the same trench before a multitude, he warns them of hypocrisy. Before people and before the crowd, your overwhelming desire must be to be seen and heard and noted of God more than anyone else. I want God to see me. I want God to hear me. I want God to note me more than I want anyone else to hear me and see me and note me. Paul, twice in the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians, writes to bond servants to serve their masters, not with the intent of pleasing men, but with the intent to please God. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment, and let's just read one of those. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll read to you verses 5 through 8. Verse 5. Servants, bond servants. Some translations have slaves. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive from the Lord, whether he is bond or free. You see this? Make your whole focus, your own whole intent of all that you do be to do it unto the Lord and for his honor. This is how you protect yourself from hypocrisy, at least in part. It's that all that you do is for the sake, for the eyes, for the expression before the audience of God himself, before it's ever thought of that you're before the audience of human beings. It's for God's eyes first and foremost. And here's a fourth thing. Now, living before a God of truth, making it your goal not to be influencing the crowd, making it your goal that the influence born upon people might not be yours, but Christ in his spirit alone, making your focus and your mind and your desire not to be noted by men, not to be heard by men, not to be before them and have them as your audience, but being before God as your audience above everything else, living before a God of truth, live humbly and honestly before people. Knowing that God sees everything and hears everything and it's before him that everything is spoken, be honest about yourself with them. Be ready to say with honesty like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Be ready to say, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Be ready to follow the instructions of James in James 5.16, where you confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. If you're going to live consciously before the searching eyes of God, what you'll discover is that you will live without pretense before the eyes of people. Again, I think... 
We must forsake this idea of influence in the crowd or any person by direct contact of ourselves. Some years ago, uh, the Lord made it clear to myself that I was to step out of pastoral ministry and I was to begin the ministry of church partnership evangelism. And I set aside this delight that I had in preaching. But what I found was that I couldn't stop writing sermons. I kept writing them anyhow. And I wanted to preach them, but I had no one to preach them to. And so you can imagine there was uh, growing in me a sense of frustration and even discontent. And I found an answer finally one night. I was lying in my bed. I was, I think, complaining that I had no one to preach to and I had so many messages that were adding up. In fact, I wasn't writing less messages. It seemed like I was writing more and more of them. And finally, I asked permission of God that I might preach to him and to his angels. Would they be willing to listen to what I had to say? Would the angels be willing to listen to what I had to say? They could test my writing. They could test my preaching. They could test my mind, my heart, my attitude, my spirit. They could test the truth of it all and bear witness to me and teach me and instruct me. And everything they taught me and instructed me, I would go back and preach it again to them. Maybe I could do a better job the next time around. In my mind, I had, in a sense, the idea of what it was like when I was in seminary. When I was in seminary, you had a homiletics class in which you learned to preach. And as you preached, there were a bunch of guys, and they had this sheet of paper in which they were judging whether you got all your points right. And they even judged your mannerism, whether your arms were wide enough when you were making your points, whether you had the right intonations in your voice. And then when you were done, you went by each one of them, and they would tell you what they thought you did good and what you thought you did bad and oh it was very difficult but how much better if I could just preach this way to God the Father and all the attending angels that had surrounded my bed and so I did for some time I wrote sermon after sermon after sermon and in my head and in my heart lying at the end of the day I preached them to the gathering angels and to the Father who attended to my life and I believe that this pattern provided a great correction against certain temptations in my life. It changed the manner in which I began to understand what it meant to preach. It corrected me from play acting. Where I was in seminary before those students, they would instruct me that I needed to sweep my arms wider that I needed to get my voice lower at some point, that I needed to say something that really like, use an illustration that really grabbed people's hearts and I didn't have to do that before God or the angels. I just had to speak the truth, right? And I had to be real and honest and true before them when I was thinking and what I was wanting to communicate. And so it guarded me, in a sense, against affectations that come to men in the pulpit. And it, it guarded me against producing false mannerisms in order to impress or to manipulate or to bring people to receive what you had to say. You let your words first pass before God and his witnessing angels and it will demand that there be no hypocrisy or guile or falseness in what you say or in how you say it. Does this sound strange to you? That you would think that what you said and what you spoke and how you lived and what you presented before others, you were saying and speaking and living first and foremost before God and his angels? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians, and let me read to you from chapter 2. I want to read you 11 verses there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and describing the manner of his relationship with them and the manner of his communication to them. And what you see as you look at this is you see, I think you'll be able to see that Paul has in his mind that the primary audience that he is speaking to are not the Thessalonians. 
that the primary audience is God himself, that he's doing the same thing, and he's seeking his approval before God, and, and Paul is going to witness that this idea of coming and speaking and being before God above everything else changed the way that he conducted himself among them. It was a check so that all that he did was honest and true and without deceit and without a search for advantage, which is why people become hypocritical. Listen to the words. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, you know we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. In other words, even as we spoke, we knew God was testing our hearts. We were bringing it before God. We were running before him for his approval before we ever offered it to you. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, for as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. Basically what Paul's saying here is we didn't or we were not motivated to gain advantage for ourselves by what we said to you. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. What they got was all of them. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul spoke to them, but he spoke to them out of his awareness that God was witness to all that was said, it was God's pleasure, it was God's glory that he was pursuing through his words and actions among the Thessalonians. God was the primary audience. I told you there were five points under this first point of the temptation of hypocrisy and the spore of hypocrisy being planted in us when we're before the multitude or those that we want to influence. I add a fifth one here, and it's this. You want to deal with hypocrisy and make sure that it doesn't grow in your life. Number five, do not go to God for cleansing and forgiveness for sins with a motivation to hide that sin from others or to keep from being found out. Do not go to God confessing your sins with the motivation that this will keep you from being caught. This will sweep it not under the blood, but sweep it under the rug, you might say. Confession to God is not to be done in an attempt to keep your dark secrets buried. I'm not suggesting here, by the way, that you're supposed to go around and announce to everyone that you encounter all the sins in your life. But if you come to the precious blood of Jesus for forgiveness, and your primary point of relief is not in being found out by others, instead of being forgiven and made right with God, you're standing before the wrong audience. Your eyes are in the wrong place. You're desiring the wrong outcome. You're more concerned about what men might know about you than what God does know. You're more concerned about the social consequences of your actions than the 
the profound spiritual consequences of your sin. We know that Moses sinned. We know it. We know that he murdered an Egyptian. We know that he grumbled against God because of uh, the authority that God had given him, the responsibility God had given him to lead the people of Israel, and he complained to God about it. We know that he was told of God to strike the rock once in order to bring water out of the rock to people who were grumbling and complaining, and that Moses got up and struck the rock three times. We know that God wanted to receive the glory and honor of providing the water for the people, but that Moses presented it as a, do I have to give you water? And Moses put the glory and honor upon himself in anger as he struck the rock. And we know that God judged Moses for that by not allowing Moses to cross over into the promised land because of a sin. And we know this because Moses told us Moses revealed it to us. He is the one who reported on these things. We know of the denial of Peter because Peter told Luke and he recorded it. We know of many of the catastrophic sins of David. And we know of David's prayers of repentance. There are at least four of them, Psalm 51 being the most pronounced. We know of his great sins and we know of his great prayers of brokenness for forgiveness of sins and we know it because David did not hide from others the account of his sin and his brokenness over it. These men were not seeking to save face, to maintain a pose, to hide the shame of their sins. Thanks for joining us today at The Bread of Life. Our ministry is brought to you by the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism. It's our purpose to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, personal discipleship, the planning of new churches around the world. If you'd like to learn more, please go to traincpe.org to contact us now until we gather again around the bread of life. May God bless you.